It is great to be with you all this morning on a, a week of rain and sun intermixed today. Alcohol, marijuana, tattoos, GMOs, vaccinations, health insurance, the Sabbath, kids' Sunday school classes versus family-integrated church services, homeschooling versus public schooling versus private schooling, food and drink in the sanctuary, infant baptism versus believer's baptism, Calvinism versus Arminianism, lordship salvation, modesty standards, dating, divorce and remarriage, television, movies, and video game consumption, social media usage, sports involvement on Sundays, social justice, Donald Trump. (laughs) How about some controversial topics for the church, eh? I apologize if I've offended any of you already simply by mentioning some of those things. But the list goes on and on for issues upon which Christians can strongly disagree with one another. We live in an age of opinion. Everybody seems to have a perspective. Everybody has a stake in the issue. Everybody wants to give their two cents worth. Or in a lot of cases, their two million cents worth. Life in the church is no different. Christians are an opinionated bunch of people. Right? Most of us have personal causes to champion, along with pet ideas and ideologies that we promote. And this is not a bad thing. Don't let me tempt you to think that it is. On the one hand, this shows the creativity of our Creator in making us all as nuanced creatures. On the other hand, it reveals the many various issues that we face and our sincere desire to bring about the best outcome for our own sphere of influence. Yet, oh, how often Christians can offend and alienate one another. How often we break friendships, sever ties, and and stop speaking with one another over things such as these. R. Kent Hughes tells the story of two churches that were located just a few blocks from each other in a small community. They thought it might be better if they would merge and become one united, larger, and more effective body rather than two struggling separate churches. Good idea and concept, but they were not able to pull it off. The problem is not theology-related or gospel-related. Rather, they could not agree on how to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group preferred, forgive us our trespasses, while the other group demanded, forgive us our debts. So as the local newspaper reported, one church went back to its trespasses while the other returned to its debts. Now, one might think that with the myriad of ways for Christians to disagree on the issues of life, that God would allow for some discord and allow for some disunity within the church. But he doesn't. God overwhelmingly calls you and I, as a church, to unity. Unity. Not necessarily unity of thought, where we all come to the point where we think the exact same thing on every issue. Rather, unity of life, where we dwell together in love and social closeness in spite of our various ways of thinking. 
like a symphony of instruments of various shapes and sizes and sounds can all sound together a beautiful piece of music, so our various lives and personalities and preferences within the church should harmonize for a single purpose, to bring praise and glory to God. God calls us to a harmony of lives, a harmony of lives. And this call to unity, this summons to harmony, is on the forefront of God's mind. Puritan writer, great John Owen, said, There is no other Christian duty urged in Scripture with more earnestness and vehemence than that of unity. Unity. We're going to be in Romans 15 today. Romans 15. But before we get there, I want to simply read and make some brief remarks on a few other Bible passages on unity. Romans 15. Just listen to these as I, as I read them. Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Unity is a good and pleasant thing. Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39a. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. Unity is the plan of God for his covenant people. Zephaniah 3 9. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call in the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Unity is God's design for the service of the saints in eternity. John 10 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd. Unity is Jesus' goal for his sheep. John seventeen eleven, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Unity was Jesus' prayer for his followers the night before his crucifixion. Acts 2, 46 and 47, and again, 432 says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Unity is the example of the early church. One more, John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Unity is the model of our Trinitarian God, the three persons unified inexplicably in the one Godhead, forever dwelling in perfect love and unity. Paul himself understood the importance of church unity. In fact, there's not a single church to whom he wrote that was not exhorted in some form or fashion to pursue unity within their church body. And this church of Rome that we're going to see today was no exception to this call for a unified church. Paul devotes one and a half chapters in the book of Romans to this topic of church unity. What we come to today in Romans 15, 1 to 7, is part one of his conclusion to the matter. Part two is related specifically to Jew and Gentile divisions, and that's found beyond this morning text in verses 8 to 13, focusing specifically on Jew and Gentile divisions. We'll focus on part one of Paul's conclusion, a text that's so readily applicable to us at First Baptist today. Follow along with me as I read in the ESV, Romans 15, 1 to 7. 
God's word says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. May God forever impress these eternal truths upon our hearts. Now, as I had mentioned before reading this text, we are dropping into Paul's part one of his conclusion on his discussion of church unity. And in chapter 14, Paul wrote to the Roman believers on the importance of welcoming and accepting what he calls weaker Christians. Consider how he begins. Look back at 14 verse 1. Get a little context here. 14 verse 1 says, As for those, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He tells them weak in faith. Weak in faith used here does not mean that some have a weaker faith and others have a stronger faith. There aren't quantities of faith. You either have it or you don't. This is not about if you have enough faith to be healed, right? Like the health and wealth preachers might say, if you don't have enough faith, then you won't be healed. If you just have enough faith, you've got to have more faith. You must be weak in faith. That's not it. That's not what Paul's saying. By saying weak in faith, Paul means weak in the faith. Weak in things pertaining to faith in Jesus Christ. He's referring to young Christians, someone who does not understand all the particulars of Christian living. They are weak in their understanding of Christian things and weak in knowing how to live out their true faith in Jesus Christ. And in today's lingo, 2,000 years removed from Paul, we might call such a person a less mature Christian or an immature Christian. It's about Christian maturity. That's what this weak and strong is about. What Paul is dealing with in Rome is a grand mix of Christians, some who have been saved for over 20 years, from right after the time of Christ's death and resurrection, and others who have been saved for only a few months, or maybe even a few days. You've got mature Christians intermingling all the time with baby Christians. And these newer believers, they're coming out of a paganism or full-on Judaism. They haven't yet come to understand fully what life in Christ entails, nor all the freedoms that it gives. And so in chapter 14... Paul uses one main example to help explain how unity in their church body should work. He gives a few brief examples, but his one main example is focused on meat offered to idols. Meat offered to idols. Let me just give a quick synopsis here. To a strong Christian, a mature Christian in this church, eating meat offered to an idol was totally fine. As Paul explains elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, an idol has no real existence. An idol had no real existence. So the mature Christian can recognize that meat offered to an idol was just meat. No different than any other meat, since idols weren't anything anyway. They were fine to eat it. But a weak or immature Christian, they probably have not learned or fully internalized this truth yet. So to eat meat that was first offered to an idol would cause them to think they were worshiping a false god. To eat this meat would defile their conscience. 
And such a difference of understanding and thus difference of opinion among the early Roman church could easily lead to conflict and disunity. It could quickly lead to the immature Christians judging the mature Christians for eating meat, judging them as sinners and condemning them in their hearts. How dare you eat that food? It was offered to idols. It could lead to the mature Christians to despise the immature, since the immature stance on the issue would not allow them to eat this meat. Consider if you just picked up some tri-tip and brisket from the local meat market near the temple to take to the potluck at church. Now you've got to throw it in the trash. So in such a scenario, you've got nobody eating meat, you've got immature Christians passing judgment on the mature, and you've got mature Christians despising the immature Christians. Sounds like an incredible opportunity for discord and disunity in the church. Now I've left out of a lot of important details there out of that brief recap, but we'll save that for a Romans 14 sermon someday. We're in Romans 15 this morning. And it's in light of such a dilemma that Paul had an expectation for the mature believers, which he lays out in verses 1 and 2. It's here we find our first point, point number 1, Paul's expectation. Paul's expectation. Verses 1 and 2. He writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Unity starts with the mature. It is mature Christians whom Paul calls upon. They are called to act in accordance with their maturity and to work for unity among the younger believers. As I've already mentioned, Paul's use of strong and weak is synonymous with mature and immature Christians. Same here in verse 1. You'll note that in in verse 1, Paul includes himself in this category of mature believers. He says, we, we who are strong, we who are mature. Paul's recognizing this is not just a church of Rome issue. This is a church at large issue. To restate verse 1, we could say every mature Christian in every church has an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I praise God that First Baptist here is made up of many, many mature Christians. God has been working in your hearts and in your minds as a church body. That's readily evident after being here just one month. Through the steady preaching of his word, God has been maturing this body of believers. You who are mature, you here sitting right now, this first verse is most specifically for you. Paul has a great expectation for you. You are obligated to be CUOs in this church, chief unity officers. Okay? Look at what Paul says. Again, we who are mature, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the less mature and not to please ourselves. That word obligation means to owe a debt, to have a, a strong obligation to someone. First John 4.11, we read, If God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. That is, we're also obligated to love one another. For unity's sake in our church, mature Christians are obligated to pursue unity. How? By bearing with the failings of the weak. Now, what does that mean exactly? Bear with the failings of the weak. I'm so glad you asked. You see, the ESV, the NIV, and the New King James Version all say, bear with here. Bear with. This conveys in English the idea of tolerating or putting up with or simply ignoring the shortcomings of other Christians. But that's, that's not exactly right. 
The, the, the term literally means to bear a burden, to carry an object. This is what Christ did with his cross on the way to Golgotha. He carried his cross. He bore it on his back. He didn't simply bear with his cross. He bore it. The word is not passive in nature. It's active. And so the NASB gets the sense best. Point to Pastor Bill when he says, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. Not bear with, bear the weaknesses of the weak. And the idea is that mature Christians are to actively carry upon themselves the shortcomings of lesser mature Christians. To actively carry it upon themselves. It means that we, in love, actively restrict ourselves, limit ourselves, and go the extra mile to see that the less mature Christian is not offended or caused to stumble. We don't simply put up with immature people, but energetically take action to look out for their needs. To quote Douglas Moo, commentator Douglas Moo, he says, Paul is exhorting the strong to willingly and lovingly assume for themselves the burden that these weak believers are carrying. Now, the mature do not need to adopt the immature position, not at all, but they need to sympathetically enter into their attitudes, refrain from criticizing and judging them, and do what a sincere love would require. So in the case of Paul in Romans 14 and these Roman Christians, the mature Christians should never go buy that meat in the first place, should never bring it in the first place, knowing that this could be a problem. They just leave their meat at home and they don't make an issue out of it. They love their fellow Christians. Again, it's not a mere toleration of differences. I'm going to eat my meat. You eat yours. We'll be okay. We're different. That's fine. No, but a loving embrace, a passionate care for those who are different. Is that you this morning, mature Christian? Do you lovingly embrace those who think different than you? Do you gladly sacrifice your desires for the sake of others? Or do you simply tolerate people who are different than you? Friend, mere toleration of other Christians and their perspectives misses the mark. Will you stoop and lower yourself to meet the desires and respect the opinions of other Christians. Paul adds at the end of verse 1 that our goal is not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. The goal of a mature Christian should never be to please himself or herself at the expense of another Christian. doesn't mean that we can't ever do what we want to do, but that we are never to do it without regard for others. Are your actions at church shaped this way? Are you aiming to please yourself first or others first? Paul's essentially saying in verse 1, mature Christians, prove that you're mature by lowering yourself in humility to the level of others. Again, not to adopt their immature position, but to sympathetically care with them and carry with them their concerns and struggles, not to please ourselves. This concept of pleasing others is what verse 2 then is all about. And I believe here Paul is widening his view from verse 1 to include every single believer, not just the strong, not just the mature. Verse 2 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul uses each of us, and that signals that he's pointing to every believer. Each of us in this church, the mature and the immature, is to please our neighbor for their good. 
with the goal to building them up, not hurting them in the faith. Now, who is your neighbor? Right? We've probably seen the VeggieTales movie. Who is your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Not just brothers and sisters in Christ even, but everyone in the world. Yes, the whole world. This is forever to be our reproach to interpersonal relationships with anyone. Paul's example rings out loud and clear in 1 Corinthians 10.33. He's telling the Corinthians, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Paul's always looking out for others, how to please them. Another key passage really nails it on the head. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this one. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Just a few pages to the right. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. It's an all-encompassing call for us to value others' interests above our own. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, church is not about you. It's about serving others. It's about deferring to others. It's about submitting yourselves to others' needs and wishes. So will you humbly put your own interests to the side and look out for others? Not just when you're at church, but especially when you're at church. That's what God calls you and me to do. To sacrifice our wants, our interests, our opinions, and the importance of being right in every scenario for the sake of Christian unity. And God's masterful symphony will only sound out clearly and beautifully when every, every musician humbly plays their part, not seeking to please ourselves, but seeking to please the conductor, God above. This is what we're called to do. This is exactly what Christ did in verse 3. It says, for Christ did not please himself. This is Paul's motivation for living in this way. Our second point, point number two, Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Can you imagine that? For an entire 33 years, Christ never once sought to please himself first. He never took the closest parking spot. He never interrupted a conversation to get his point across. He never took the bowl of ice cream with bigger scoops. Christ was not out to please himself in anything. We just read in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 on putting others' interests first. The very following verse speaks about Christ and his utter humility and how he put the will of God first in everything. And Paul there says we are to do the same. Luke twenty two forty two states that Jesus' goal was to do the will of the Father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was human, he had a will and desires, but his bent was to do the will of others. He did not please himself. Friends, Christ is our model in all things. 
The goal of the Christian life, our sanctification, is conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. We're to look more like Christ every single day. But I don't think Paul is bringing in Jesus here just as a model, just as something for us to emulate. He is that model, but I think a right view of Jesus needs to do more for us. You see, a person can be in a rowboat out on the ocean and see the shore way off in the distance. That shore is where he needs to go eventually. He's having a good time. But it's not until he realizes that his boat is leaking and there are sharks around him that he quickly grabs the oars and gets to shore. Right? Friends, Christ is both our model and our motivation. We should not just look at Christ and think, oh yes, I'd like to be like Christ one day and then rest our hands and do nothing. When we consider that without Christ's righteousness credited to us, we would be dead and without hope. We become motivated to grab the oars of our sanctification and strive to reach that shore of his perfect righteousness. Christ is our motivation for godly living. And here in our text, Christ, Christ motivates us to live, not to please ourselves, but others. And to back up this statement, Paul quotes from Psalm 69, one of the top five psalms uh, applied to Christ in the New Testament. Psalm 69.9, he quotes, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That is what we have here. We have people who hated God the Father taking it out on God the Son. They mocked him. They insulted him. And while this occurred throughout Jesus' life, it was most intense, most intense at his, at his crucifixion. Just listen to these verses from Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 39 to 44. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. But he, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Christ did not have to suffer as he did. He had power to call down a legion of angels and avoid all that suffering, all that insulting. Yet he was not looking to please himself, but to please his maker, to please God, excuse me, not his maker, not even close. My mistake. He's not looking to please himself. He's looking to please God. And by way of the cross, other people, he pleased God by obeying his will and he would please other people like you and me by dying for their sins and bringing salvation. He took upon himself the reproach of men who were first and foremost angry at God and he did so for the glory of God and the good of mankind. Christ was insulted for you. Christ took these insults and bodily abuse for you. He was not looking to please himself. So why quote this verse? Why quote it? Paul wants us to see that if Christ the Holy One was willing to take upon himself so much suffering in the form of insults hurled at him by his enemies, then should we not be willing to sacrifice our wants and pleasures and opinions and preferences for the sake of our fellow believer? Can we not take on little daily sufferings in light of the grandest suffering that Christ took on our behalf? 
Christ didn't seek to please himself and to avoid the pain, avoid the, pain, avoid the insults. He let himself be insulted, reproached, whipped, and beaten. And he did it for you. He did it for you. What a savior. What a model and what a motivation. What a motivation. By the power of Christ in you and the sight of Christ before you. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. What in your life needs to change because of Christ? What relationship do you need to humble yourself in and seek to please the other person, not yourself? What attitude of selfishness do you need to confess before God and then purge from your heart? Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Christ gave up everything for you. So give up your bitterness. Give up your priorities. Give up your heart's desires and love your neighbor. Please others first. Serve your spouse. Accept the awkward, the cold-hearted, the misguided, or the immature person and love them as Christ would. We are compelled to accept, serve, and love one another. Now, I find it interesting that Paul didn't confirm the selflessness of Jesus with an example from Jesus' life, but rather quoted from his Bible, the Old Testament. To Paul, the Bible gives greater testimony to Jesus' character than any life example of Jesus could give. He had lots he could have picked out of Jesus' life, but he went to the scriptures. And now in verse 4, Paul explains himself. This is really a a parenthetical statement in Paul's message. I was really eager to learn from the commentaries how verse 4 ties into the rest of this passage on unity. I was like, ooh, there must be something really clever here. I'm missing this. This is going to be great. Well, here it is. There's no connection to unity whatsoever. Paul simply had a thought about the Old Testament scriptures after he quoted from it about Jesus, and he dropped his thought here in verse 4. You see, in verse 3, he just quoted the Old Testament to New Covenant, New Testament Christians in Rome. And yet, throughout his letter, he's been stating to them that they're no longer under the law, but under grace. In Romans 6.14, he says, you are not under the law, but under grace. In Romans 7, 6, he writes, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And in such a light, the Romans Christians might be asking, so if we're not under the law, Paul, why are you quoting from the Old Testament? And so Paul breaks his chain of thought on Christian unity to interject the continuing relevance and importance of the Old Testament for New Covenant Christians. And he writes in verse 4, look there, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, when I was a student at the Masters University, my very first semester I took Old Testament 1, Old Testament survey number 1, and I had Professor William Varner. This guy had a contagious love for the Old Testament. It really rubbed off on us as students. On the very first day of class, the very first thing we did was read Romans 15.4, and it was our very first homework assignment to memorize it. Here I am at an Old Testament class on my first day of college, memorizing the New Testament. But as you can see from this verse, 
makes total sense. Christians, we tend to be so focused on the New Testament that we miss out on the Old. Right? 77% of your Bible is actually Old Testament. It was written for our instruction, Paul says, for the instruction of all Christians. And so in that light, it is natural and right for Paul to quote from it to support Jesus as a selfless man, as one who sought not to please himself. It is right and natural for you and I as well to know it and to study it. Though it's no longer a source of direct moral imperatives for us, it is central to helping us understand the climax of salvation history and our responsibilities as new covenant people of God. These Romans were not to throw away the Old Testament or to unhitch from it, as Andy Stanley or some other few confused pastors are, are promoting. Rather, we are to rely on the entire body of Old Testament writings for encouragement and hope. For encouragement and hope. That's what the Old Testament brings to those who pour into it. You'll find the loving compassion of God throughout its pages. We were just in Isaiah 42 and 43 this morning. God tells his people, I love you. Literally, quote, I love you. In chapter 42 of Isaiah. So when you're bogged down in your sin and you see just how undeserving you are of God's love, it's these hundreds of stories and prophecies in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness that can give you hope and encouragement to press on. Don't unhitch from the Old Testament. Get hitched to it. Our problem today is not that we don't have enough Old Testament, or that we have too much Old Testament, so we don't have enough Old Testament in our hearts. We need more of it. And so let me make a shameless plug to you as members and attendees of this church. You need to be here at 9 a.m. on Sundays. Pastor Bill is taking us through the second half of the book of Isaiah. It's one of the richest sections in all the Bible. And on Sunday mornings, it's being taught right here by one of the most seasoned and elegant teachers of God's word, Pastor Bill. There's no good reason not to get up earlier at 9 o'clock for this delightful time in God's word in the Old Testament. So I encourage you to come. All right. Now with Paul's parenthesis of the Old Testament aside and my shameless plug for Sunday school aside, we return to our regular scheduled program on Christian unity, verse 5. And it's here we see our third point. Paul's supplication, verses 5 and 6. Paul's supplication. He breaks out in prayer. Feeding on the ideas of endurance and encouragement that the Old Testament bring, Paul prays, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity among the body is so important. It's right to pray for and to desire it. Linus, one of the Peanuts cartoon characters, found this out himself, his desiring unity. In one of the cartoons, Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you can think you can walk right in here and take over, he exclaims. These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? asks Linus. Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, Why can't you get organized like that? <laughs> Unity. It's important for accomplishing goals, but more significantly, it's essential for bringing glory to God within the church. And so Paul prays that the church of Rome 
and by way of application, our church of First Baptist would live in such harmony with one another that together you may, with one voice, glorify God. That's his prayer. That God would grant us harmony and unity as a church so that this local assembly brings glory to God. And we need to make an important distinction. Harmonious unity is not a result that we achieve once we've glorified God. It is a prerequisite to glorifying God. Let me say that again. Harmonious unity is not a result that we achieve once we've glorified God. It is a prerequisite to glorifying God. Do we as a church want to bring glory to God? Then we need to live in harmony with one another. Let's look at Paul's prayer for a moment. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Paul asks for God to grant us harmony, a, a harmonious, unified living. Again, this does not mean that we all think the same way. That phrase, um, uh, that we, to live in such harmony with one another, doesn't mean that we all think the same way. The whole idea is that while you don't think the same way on various issues, that you still live together harmoniously. He adds at the end of verse 5, in accord with Christ Jesus. In accord with Christ Jesus. It's important to note that Paul is not praying for unity at all costs. He does not want some people to agree upon error just for the sake of unity. We've been in the book of Galatians on Sundays lately, and in that latter Paul does not call the Galatian Christians to harmoniously unify with Judaizers, those who were, who were forcing them to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul says no. He calls them to reject them and reject their teaching. And so we cannot accept and embrace those of the false gospel, of false theology. We do not unify at all costs. But within the things that accord with Christ, those things of, of secondary importance, things such as what I listed at the opening of this sermon, among these things, we strive for harmony with one another, even if we don't agree. We don't all have to think the same way, hold the same position, or live in the same way. But we are expected to put others first, to look for their good, and not to please ourselves. That's unity in action. That's unity in action. What does this look like? More specifically, what does this look like? Paul instructs us, Ephesians 2, excuse me, Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, Live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a glimpse into what, what harmonious living looks like. Colossians 3, 12 to 14, Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what harmonious living looks like. How are you doing? Are you compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient? bearing with one another, forgiving others when you're wronged. These are the essence of love for your neighbor. If you accomplish love, everything will be bound together in perfect harmony. And that's what Paul's prayer is for us. 
That's what Paul's prayer is for us. And verse 6, the last part of his prayer, explains why this is so important. Explains why this is so important. It's his purpose statement. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of doing church in unity, that God may be glorified. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I suppose we could ask instead, what is the chief end of the church? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's Paul's prayer. That's God's heart for us. And that's our goal. So will we do this? It starts with you. It starts with me as individuals that make up this body of Christ. Will we strive for Christ-honoring, Christ-following, Christ-motivated unity for the glory of God? Will we do it? How could we not? How could we not? We are exhorted to do it today by this text. And Paul wraps it up with verse 7. This is Paul's exhortation. Paul's exhortation. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Paul really recaps his entire first three points. What is his expectation? Right here in the verse. Welcome one another. What is his motivation? Right here in verse 7. Christ has welcomed you. What is his supplication? What is his prayer? That we would do this for the glory of God. End of the verse. It's for the glory of God. Therefore, in light of all this, Paul summarizes, go and do it. Go and do it. Welcome and accept one another. This Greek word translated welcome, it's hard to capture. In the ESV, it says, it says welcome. The NASB, the NIV says accept. New King James Version has received. The idea is a wholehearted acceptance of another person. A wholehearted acceptance. It's acceptance and reception in the fullest and deepest sense. Friend, think of how Christ has accepted you and welcomed you into his family. Our perfect God and Savior, Jesus Christ, welcomed each of us, sinful, arrogant, ignorant, you and me. He welcomed us into his family. He did that. Now, that's only for those of us who have turned to him in faith, however. Have you not yet in faith turned to Jesus from your sin? Are you still living in sin, condemned to hell? Friend, Christ will accept you. Christ will accept you with joy. He will accept you in spite of your sins, as great as they may be. He will accept you in spite of who you are, where you come from, whether the color of your skin or your net worth. Christ accepts and embraces everyone who turns to him in faith. How could you reject such a warm welcome from Jesus? If you've never turned to him, do so now. Turn to the Savior. Experience his love. That's who Christ is. He welcomes us. He accepts all who repent of sin and come to him. Christians, Christ has accepted you. When your character is at its worst, Jesus Christ still humbly stoops in acceptance of you as part of his family. And friends, that's our motivation for welcoming and accepting and supporting one another. Despite all our differences, despite our different views and opinions, despite our various levels of maturity in the faith, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not. But we must accept one another. 
for Christ has accepted us. Therefore, let's welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We look to Christ. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, says it well. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking toward Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And that's exactly right. Friends, I don't want us to walk away from here going, unity, rah, 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 and focus only on unity for unity's sake. That'll fail. I want us to walk away today saying, Christ, and have him be on our hearts and on our tongues. As we each look to him as our modal model and find him as our motive, we will all be tuned to the same fork. Harmony among us will be natural as we each focus on Christ. So by the power of Christ in us, we can do this. We must do this, and we will do this for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, you sent your Son. He gave up heaven, all the riches of heaven to come, live among us, people that can't get along or agree on anything. And yet he was a friend of sinners. And he went to the cross, not to please himself, but to do your will. And to rescue us, to save us from our sins. God, set our eyes on Christ, our all-compassionate, all-glorious Savior. And may we strive by his power, by his model, with him as our motivation, God, to be unified with one another, to overlook wrongs and sins and to overlook uh, our differences of perspectives, God. And may we as one body, as First Baptist Church and beyond, live unified under the banner of Christ. God, we pray as we go from here today that you would work on our hearts and be ever on our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you are dismissed this morning. I invite you to come back tonight for evening service at 6 o'clock, and have a wonderful week. Thank you for coming this morning. God bless.